This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Hello and welcome everybody to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I am your host, Samson Folk, and uh, today we're talking about some really fun storylines from the season that was and heading into the summer, next season, all that kind of stuff. But to do it with me is a uh, host over at the Locked On, <laughs> Locked On Podcast Sports Network, okay? <laughs> he talks about all kinds of stuff on all types of days, but he also does play-by-play for the CEBL and in J. Cole's uh, letter written to the CBL, <laughs> indicated that he wanted his games called by Sean Woodley. Said his voice was audible chocolate. And so, Sean, how the hell are you doing, man? I'm doing well, man. As it turns out, I think I am calling the first game that he's scheduled to play in next week. So uh, he got his wish. I'm, I'm glad for him. Uh, <laughs> you, not you sure any... anyone else wants it, but I'll, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure to work in some sort of very cringy lyrical reference at some point over the course of a two-hour broadcast, I'm sure. Will you Will you give us a hint? You, no, I have to anything? listen to J. Cole first is the thing. I don't like it would be nice if like a, a punk band frontman would uh, join the league because <laughs> then that would be a lot easier for me. But I uh, I know I had a friend who I drove around with a lot in like uh, second year university who listened to a lot of J. Cole. Going to have to dig back into that catalog because I have not dusted it off ever since. <laughs> OK, well, it, you know, I think it'll be that'll be that's cool. Isn't that yeah. weird how celebrity works? Like you just, you know. All of a sudden, you're calling J. Cole in a game, like as if yep. it were the NBA All-Star game or something. I'm really stressed out about what I call him on, because it, most people just refer to people as like the last name, right? It's a, it's Barnes. Right. It's Siakam. Do I just say it's Cole? Is it J? Is it, uh, I, I'm stressing out about it big time. I'm going to need the pronunciation guide to be very detailed before I, stu- I start that game on Thursday. There's, a, <laughs> there's an ongoing meme that you would refer to him as Jermaine. And then you mm-hmm. wait a beat and then Cole. And yeah. So that's apparently what it's supposed to be. But okay, we're talking storylines for the Raptors and all the things that come along with it. It's been a hell of a year, chock full of storylines and chock full of successes. And uh, yeah, we're here to talk about it. So Sean, your, your favorite storyline from this past season. Let's hear it and then let's talk about it. Well, for anyone who's heard us podcast together before this year, I don't think it's going to be a huge surprise, but like watching Pascal Siakam do what he did and become the all NBA caliber player that we all, we kind of knew he was, but like kind of a souped up and better version of it. That was really, really satisfying. I know you were on the sort of believe in Pascal kind of train for the entirety of his sort of dip in his career, right from the bubble on through last season. And we've talked at length about how, you know, the Tampa season wasn't actually as bad as people painted to be and all that. Uh, And it was really cool to see him just kind of shake off all of the bullshit and be a fantastic basketball player for everyone to see again. And it was just, you know, the evolution as the season went along, I thought was really cool as he kind of got his feet wet in December thereabouts. And then kind of January comes around. He has that massive game, I think, December 28th against the Sixers. That to me is sort of like the pivot point of the season. He comes back from COVID and from then on out, he's just one of the, 12 or 13 best players alive and the Raptors win a million games as a result. And I'm a sucker for a redemptive arc. I'm sucker. I'm a sucker for dudes who get dumped on and kind of emerge from it. This is the reason I'm a fan of Carl Anthony towns. It's a reason, frankly, I like Kyle Lowry so much, right? Like guys who sort of are obviously very good, but because of the take industrial complex kind of get dirt shoveled on their careers way prematurely, kind of rising up and sort of dusting off that thin layer of lazily tossed upon dirt to, 
you know, recapture their, their former glory and, you know, in fact, expand upon it. Like that kicked ass. I was so happy to watch Pascal kind of have the joy return to his game and, you know, all of the stuff about him and Nick Nurse's little tiffs totally well in the rear view. Anything to do with, you know, are they going to trade Pascal? Like the most wonderful thing is that this offseason, outside of some yahoos, is going to be free of, oh, are they going to trade Pascal conversation? Like obviously not. He is very clearly the best player they have. You don't just go and trade the best player you have to get depth or whatever the hell people want to do. And I just think it's really satisfying. It was so fun to watch, especially as a guy who's always been a Siakam dude, right? And uh, I just, I'm very happy and really excited to see where it goes next. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try and paint a timeline. Yeah. Insert anything, interject wherever you see fit. So bubble, right? COVID happens, he is later voted as you know second team all NBA. Yep. He was recognized as a better forward that year than guys like Jason Tatum. He was really remarkable. And so the bubble comes. He struggles with his handle. He struggles to create separation. He struggles to finish and he struggles with his jump shot. Basically, a lot of the things that are, you know, skill based and touch based in his game after Mm -hmm. a long uh, time off where he tried to get out of Canada to go to the States, but couldn't. He tried to find places he could work out, but couldn't. Uh, We end up with that in the bubble. He struggles immensely on offense. Still provides really great uh, value on defense, but people forget that he was a monster in that Celtic series defensively. The whole team was, but like they were playing with Norm Powell at the three a lot of the time, and he was covering up for so much. Like he was incredible, very very slept on. It's like kind of a baseline of value that he always has because of that defense. Yeah, I I always I'm glad you did because that is something I always like to add when people talk about the bubble. It's like, well, he was one of the five best defenders through the two rounds of the playoffs, which is mm-hmm. no small thing. It's kind of reserved for, you know, being bad on offense and then uh being like exceptional on defense is kind of like a Draymond role. And mm-hmm. Pascal is supposed to be, you know, well past that and has True. now ascended to that point. But so he leaves the bubble. Um Really, the media around it and a lot of the the fan base around it is pretty vitriolic, not in a good place. Uh, Tampa, we get to Tampa and, you know, he's Dureg P. He has his new, he's signed with Red Bull. He's putting out, you know, the Pascal propaganda, which is now, I guess, kind of a uh, a noteworthy Twitter account that has developed yeah. on uh, <laughs> Raptors Twitter. But this was this was the actual act of propaganda. And good stuff, too. I enjoyed his little film series and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But he enters a season where he's mostly working on playmaking, is playing with a much less potent version of Kyle Lowry, and uh, no Kawhi Leonard, like nothing like that. And and Fred is also... A lot of Stanley Johnson. A lot of Stanley Stanley Johnson. Johnson. (laughs) Yeah. Aaron Baines is his front court partner. And so this is where he finally learns that, like, space is no longer his ally mm-hmm. because you know he's he's never he's not allied aligned with it let's say and uh so he develops a lot as far as playmaking he has a very public beef with nick nurse wherein he got uh, suspended for one game for conduct detrimental to the team i believe mm-hmm. that was blown up in quite a few media circles um it led to a lot of speculation that he would be traded we then he injures his shoulder he gets surgery uh the whole summer he is put in trade packages by fans and then by analysts and then by rumor makers Mm -hmm. he gets aggregated a bunch as if he were fodder for moving up in the draft as if they want to move him for certain players and then we come to this season he starts late the raptors go on a five-game winning streak against like indiana and new york Uh, it starts to bubble up that maybe this team is, you know, fine without Pascal. He comes back, the defense tanks, uh, those voices get louder. And then eventually, as you said, December 28th, I think he finds his stride uh, post-COVID. He goes on a streak of playing like 40 minutes per game, playing phenomenal defense, averaging like 23, like eight and five, and uh, probably solidified himself at, uh, a spot on an all NBA team. And here we are. Is that, is that like the proper timeline? Yeah, I think it's a pretty good summation. I, I mean, I think, you know, the beginning of it is also interesting to point out because like the last game he played before the shutdown in Utah was like one of the best games he played that entire all NBA season. Right. And it's just like seeing the, 
precipitous drop off from that peak where they go in and like have that really they beat the Jazz in that game, right? It was like a pretty inspiring win. Uh, you know, I think he had like 28 and maybe like eight assists or something like that. I'm probably misquoting it, but he was really good. It was one of his better playmaking games. And then to see like the next version of him being the one who can't post up Jalen Brown to save his life, but kept on doing it over and over in that second round, like yeah, it was a bummer, man. But yeah, I think you kind of laid it out pretty well. You know, the it, it I forgot though how people were still like, "Who's he even good at the start of this season?" That I that 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 bumps me out. I forgot that was a thing. I remember like there was like a clear line of demarcation on that December twenty eighth, especially like doing my podcast like on YouTube. Like the YouTube comments flipped forever after that 28th. Like there were still people like after a, like a loss, be like, Siakam sucks, trade him, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, okay, I don't, I don't need to read these comments. This is YouTube, but you know, shout out to the lovely YouTube people watching this video. I'm talking about my channel. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it just, it, it was, I totally forgot that it was so vitriolic at the start of this season, even as well. Like very angsty man. I'm glad that the angst around Siakam has now gone away because like he's the least angsty dude in the world just to look at him to look at him smile and just kind of play basketball like there's no angst about that guy at all yet it seemed to be the only emotion that was engendered by his existence for a little while there. It introduces a very interesting conversation that we won't get too far into but I just want to like brush the top of is that on the one hand Pascal Siakam with this season also came, I think, like an immense amount of grace and wisdom, wherein mm-hmm. every post game played good or bad, the questions good or bad. His response was always that he didn't really care if he thought he was the best player in the world. He didn't care if he thought or if you thought he was the worst player in the world. Mm-hmm. He just was himself and he was trying to play for his teammates and his loved ones. And he eventually achieved, I think, the, the best season of his career. But within yeah. that, it's a really interesting conversation because early on in the year, uh, in November, I believe, Lewis and I did that minute basketball episode where we said in defense of Pascal Siakam because the the dialogue was, as you said, like or as we both said, like vitriolic. And, you know, on the one hand, as podcasters, as people who work in the space, you see the dialogue mm-hmm. online. And especially in a world that's post-COVID now, maybe we'll see it out in the world more often. But it's really interesting to say, like, Twitter doesn't matter because it doesn't. But it is also the largest marketplace for sharing of sports opinions. So, like, it's the only place to check the pulse, right? Like, right. So be it a player, be it somebody who covers the league. I've always found it or have found it increasingly interesting whether you should pay heed because it is, it is the pulse, mm-hmm. but it's also a pulse that is exacerbated in vitriol because it is a lot of times anonymous. So it's, yeah. it's not like everybody at the bar scene or whatever. It's just like, yeah, I've always found that very, very interesting. And Pascal, because he doesn't have to be on social media, at least yeah. not, not in the way that, you know, you would be. He's just kind of done away with that. And I think, you know, a, a huge credit to him for doing so. Yeah, I think when it comes to like that checking the pulse thing, it, it's sort of like I need to check two different like I got to check the wrist and the neck when it comes to like, is this actually a way people feel? And like the the one is like Twitter, YouTube comments, whatever, like the online space. And the other one is like the people in my life who are big Raptors fans who are maybe not quite as like absorbed in it all as I am like. I had an uncle, for example, who just really did not like Kyle Lowry and really thought that like this was before, obviously, the turnaround. I laughed at him all the time that we had this conversation once. But uh, like, you know, and I'll have like other you know family members who I'll be like, yeah, what do you think about Siakam? Like, where, where are you at? And like, if the people who I know watch the team and like are, you know, kind of, you know, in the loop and are not like overreactionaries are down on a guy or in on a guy. Like I kind of know, like if it doesn't match what like the online discourse is, I'll kind of just kind of leave it. Oh, well that's the online thing. No one really cares about that. But like if it lines up where both my cousin who loves the Raptors is like sick of a guy and online is also sick of a guy, then I'm like, okay, maybe there's some legs to this. Maybe I need to have more of a sample than just my cousin and online. But like, you know, it's, it's kind of the best you can do. Right. But yeah, it's with Siakam. I I thankfully found that 
most people who I talked to like day to day about Siakam were a little bit less angsty than sort of like the online discourse, which is encouraging for sure. I didn't have like, you know, my, my same Kyle Lowry disliking uncle was not like get rid of Pascal now. Like I think most people kind of understood that like the couple of years he went through were miserable, man. Like the, you know, and the Michael Grange piece, I thought that a really good job illuminating that mm-hmm. that came out, I think, near the end of the season, right? And hopefully people have more of a bit of understanding of the context behind why he struggled so badly in the bubble. And if you isolate the bubble out as this weird outlier and you look at the Tampa season as its own thing that where, again, he played better than you give him credit for, than anyone really gives him credit for. That's where his playmaking seeds were first planted. And you also look at all the circumstance around it and the roster they had on hand and the COVID absences and the fact that the back part of the season became garbage time by necessity where no one was really playing games or anything like that. You know, I I think reasonable people can look at the sort of overall sort of scope of Pascal's career and, and realize, oh, like, yeah, there was a year and a half dip there, but for like obvious and totally understandable reasons. So hopefully that that stuff's all behind. I'm sure, you know, the next time Siakam comes into a game and, and has a couple bad games in a row next year, it'll start back up again because that's the way it works. But uh, I, I think for reasonable people, there, there's uh, hopefully some understanding of the context behind the dip in his career and uh, sort of an understanding that he's left that behind big time now. Mm-hmm. It's uh, you and I have a similar process for checking the pulse. And I remember last summer, I got a lot of questions about um, for like, you know, I have an uncle as well who asked me about um, Pascal Siakam. And one of the first questions he asked was about Siakam not getting along with Nick Nurse. Right. And that makes you think that, like, if somebody who pays attention to the NBA but isn't, you know, keeping up on everything is asking those questions, then I think you can surmise that that is where the dialogue is, not only yeah. by by fans but by media as well. Totally. And that's where I was kind of like, okay, there's a lot of – you know, the periphery is dominating the w- the prevailing thoughts on Pascal Siakam. It's not about like, oh wow, what a what a really fun playmaking season. Like this guy, yeah. <laughs> and and like you know, he's pulling up from different places on the floor, and quite a few things in his game are changing. But it it was more so about like the stuff that was going on outside of it. And so I thought that was really interesting. To now, you know, part of the conversation is yes. He there he's changed the conversation outside of it, but most of it is just that he's an all NBA player on the court, yeah. as you said, for a, an elongated stretch, like a top 12 or top 13 player, which rules kicks ass. Yeah. Frankly. I also I really wonder, like the thing that really I thought sort of hurt the discourse around him during the Tampa season was like the three or four missed game winners. And like if two of those go down, are we even talking about this being like a, you know, a substandard year for him? Like people gravitate to those big flashpoint moments, right? And maybe people who didn't watch the whole season for the Raptors and just caught those crunch time moments or were watching the game on League Pass because it was close and saw him miss those shots, like that probably warps the perception as well. But like I can't think of a stupider thing to frame your opinion of a guy on than literally one shot samples at the end of games you know it just it never and like a lot of them just like rimmed out and were like great process and bad luck and i just if if he goes two of four in those situations as opposed to oh of four i wonder how different the sort of general tone and tenor coming out of last season is everybody want and you know what you can make the argument that those two losses or those four losses that's Scotty Barnes, baby. It Pascal, is Scotty Barnes, baby. Pascal was in on it from the jump, dude. He saw the vision. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. The the, that, the greatest champion of Vision Six Nine there ever was. <laughs> yep. But the avatar of it, and you know, the purveyor of the process that brought it there, apparently. Uh, Sean, yeah. any any other storylines from this season that uh, you'd like to hit on? I mean, it's like a big one sort of not a specific guy but like it was fun as hell to watch this weird ass team play basketball man like they played weird ball weird ball and it didn't make a lot of sense a lot of the time it was new it was novel and it rocked and like you know you can quibble with how sustainable it is if you're talking like championship picture and you know are they going to be able to win more than 48 games with it did they have to exert every ounce of effort they had to win those 48 games yeah probably is that sustainable probably not 
But it was a really interesting experiment that I think in many ways worked and kind of validated the decision to go ahead with the experiment. Obviously, didn't ever, not everything went perfectly, and there's some touch-ups that will have to be made to the roster going forward. But watching them play those lineups with only 6'9 dudes was super cool. Who's the point guard? Matt Young. Who's the shooting guard? Let's say Chris Boucher. Like, it, it was just like... I love when basketball is different and weird. I, I One of my favorite teams of all time is the Grit and Grind Grizzlies because they didn't play like anybody else. They just played like, yeah, we're just going to play the way we want to. It's maybe not like the most aesthetically pleasing at times, but it gets the job done and no one else can match what we do. I like it when teams kind of buck tradition and, and say, hey, what if this thing worked? And you know, again, I think jury's still out on how effective it can be over the course of a full season. And, you know, if you have championship aspirations, but obviously they won a lot of games and they were pretty entertaining doing it. So run it back more six, nine. I, I, I'm cool with that. Like that, that was just to me all season long. I found myself just so interested in talking about the team because what they were doing was fun and new. And it wasn't like, all right, let's just run more high pick and roll. That's fine. There's a place for that. It works. But like, with the team I'm watching every single day, throw some curveballs at me, man. Like make me feel uncomfortable. And, you know, ultimately I felt very comfortable by the end of the season because they won a whole, whole lot of games. I forgot a moment on the Pascal timeline at his lowest point uh, during this season uh, for the fan base, Scotty Barnes inexplicably starts posting incessantly about how Pascal is his favorite player. Weird, yep. <laughs> fun thing. Um, but anyway, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Is that how interesting is it that the Raptors, at least for regular season basketball, found a change of pace lineup that kind of gamed the system? Mm-hmm. They rebounded over 40% of their own misses. They really, really gummed up passing lanes and driving lanes for the opposing teams. And they had this really nasty ugly offensive process that worked they just won uh heaps heaps of minutes playing without a point guard and obviously that leaned heavily on pascal siakam's creation but Mm. it also leaned on the you know incorrigible status of the raptors offensive rebounding and their ability to kind of track down turnovers on the defensive end and to rotate back towards the rim that democratic rim protection that they go after and I don't think they had like a ton of success with that in the playoffs and it's tougher to bottle that type of that type of process, you know, especially since teams can kind of lay off of shooters and you can leave your base defensive packages. But finding that in the regular season, maybe that's really meaningful for, you know, winning regular season games going forward. That's kind of like San Antonio. They didn't win the title every year. And, you know, the Raptors are not title bound or anything, but Mm -hmm. they found a way and they found lineups and styles that drove them to the upper echelon of the playoffs so that they were a higher seed and had home court advantage. And they also, they kind of started the advent of, um, what's the term? Rest, load management, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Raptors really, t- it took off with them because of Kawhi, but it was, you know, the Spurs were doing it with like Tim and Manu and, and Tony sure. for however long. So yeah, finding something like that, I think is one of the most intriguing things that the Raptors could have done. It's going to be awesome to see if they can continue that into next season. And it, as you said, and as I think in January, we did a podcast on, on your channel where mm-hmm. we were just talking about like, find the weird stuff. And as fans, what more could you want? Because everybody wants a championship, but you want a product. You want a unique style of play and you want something that you can identify with. And this gritty, long, you know, weirdo basketball that the Raptors have played is something that many people kind of clung on to for good and for bad. You know, some people are like, I can't believe they do this version of this. But Mm -hmm. it was something that was unique to them. And that is one of the best storylines for sure. And like tied into all of this too, 
you know, I, I am someone who, you know, I, I kind of take a, you know, the championship is not all I'm looking for type of approach when I'm watching basketball. Mm-hmm. I think I like the regular season more than the playoffs, actually. I find the playoffs to be very uh, angsty, to bring that word back up. And sometimes it makes it not super fun to watch. Um, you know, I'm probably on an island with that. I know it's not like a very common take. People love the playoffs. And I do like the playoffs. I, you know, I, I get down for a great series. That celtics Bucks series was awesome wish the Bucks had won it because I'm sick of the Celtics, but uh, you know, that's just my own personal biases coming into play. But, you know, I don't think we do enough in terms of appreciating the regular season and giving it, giving it up for teams that make the regular season interesting, right? Because there's so many teams where it's like, Oh yeah, well, the regular season is just like this thing we have to do before the playoffs happen. And the Raptors like went full bore. They fully exerted themselves. And I, I thought Masai had a really interesting quote, kind of around the deadline, I want to say it was, one of his availabilities he did, I think it was when he was announcing the Thad Young trade or something, where you know he was asked about the heavy minutes for guys. And yeah, Fred Van Vliet played a lot of minutes, and Pascal played a lot of minutes, and you know you could maybe attribute Fred's late-season breakdown to exactly that. Not maybe, almost certainly. But, you know, Masai said, like, you know, we're not going to go win a championship this year. Like, this is the time to go and, you know, get reps and play in intense games and get crunch time experience. And, like, that was awesome. I was glad that they tried so hard to win these games. And I, I'm not someone who really quibbles over minutes when you're not in a championship window, right? Like, I was fine seeing them run those guys out as much as they did because it lent to really exciting regular season basketball. They made regular season games super exciting and fun to watch. There were very few games. Like, I was kind of keeping a running tally for the first half of the season, you know, as to, like, all right, what their actual record is versus the was it fun to watch the game record. And honestly, the record this season and was it fun to watch the game was, like, 72-10. and Like, to me, that is... All I'm looking for. We spend six months of our lives every year watching regular season basketball and yet are so quick to shoo away its importance once the playoffs come around. And I think that's just such a silly backwards way of thinking because it informs everything that happens in the playoffs, number one. But it doesn't have to be about what it's informing that particular season either, right? Like it can be informing what comes the year after, two years down the road. And I just give it up for regular season ball. The Raptors made the regular season super intriguing this season. And you know, I think they do a pretty good job of that generally because they tend to overshoot expectations and usually expectation is kind of tied to your enjoyment of things. But I thought this season in particular, the fact that they just seem to give a shit about winning regular season games was kind of like a fun and novel concept, just as novel as their six, nine lineups, right? Like it's not something you see across the board in the NBA. You got, you know, teams are not going to send their guys over the border because it's too much of a pain in the ass and it's just a regular season game. I thought they just really made watching every game as fun as they possibly could because they tried and they wanted to win games. And to me, like that is as much as you can ask for from the thing that you're investing so much time in as a fan or as a viewer as whatever. uh, That's all I really want is entertain me, please. Don't just like treat this 82 game swath of games as though it's some sort of inconvenience on the road to the thing that actually matters. You and I are definitely in the same boat as far as it pertains to enjoying the regular season. Mm-hmm. I I don't understand. I like I get it when the quality of play, maybe the back end the front end of April, I guess, back end of March when teams if you don't have a, a fun young player who's trying a bunch of stuff, mm-hmm. maybe maybe it gets bogged down. Maybe maybe you don't enjoy that that much. And maybe you like competitive, really hard fought games. You can get that in the regular season, but yeah. Tip with quite a few teams, not towards the end. But I think that in an entertainment conglomerate, why we would do away with like, what is it, five or six months of basketball yeah. that, you know, packaged in that is all the highlights, is all the different plays and all that kind of stuff is like basketball is is and isn't a highlight sport because you can be excited about a great many things that won't show up on the highlight reel. But you mm-hmm. also remember the this the game through like oh yeah these highlights these inflection points or whatever but uh I, sometimes i think people are too uh focused on who they predicted uh to win the championship sometimes mm-hmm. i think they're too focused on picking out quote unquote frauds and all that kind of stuff <laughs> and it's like they're out there playing basketball man like they're on the court and it's televised to be on your screen 
Like mm-hmm. you're, you're not supposed to find the end result and be like, I was correct. I yeah. like, especially since most people are bad at analysis, they just like, they want to stamp like, Hey, I said this, by the way, I said that one of the 30 teams was a fraud and they weren't the one of 30 who won. So uh, I enjoy basketball this year. Like, <laughs> like, it's like putting in a cheat code into a video game to like get yourself to the end without actually playing the thing. Like what, what's yeah. the joy in that? Like, oh, cool. Go. You won the game. Great. Good job. Uh, yeah. Rolled credits. Woohoo. <laughs> yeah. Go enjoy the hoops. And as you said, 72 and 10, uh, as far as fun hoops go, the, the Raptors were the 96 Bulls. <laughs> of this yeah, season pretty much yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i think that's a great point just playing fun basketball doing something is is uh really great but uh we're gonna get into the summer storylines the off-season storylines and all that kind of stuff after this ad read so get ready listener get ready viewer for a message from our friends over at jack health so you want to get to the top of your game jack health at www.jack.health is an online service for men's health that handles the doctor's appointment, the prescription, and the shipping, which, by the way, is free. All you need to do is stay home and relax. They've got stuff for sexual health, daily health, hair and skin, you name it. Order what you want, fill out some questions, and get it shipped straight to you. Skip having to lay out all your medical issues in the clinic waiting room and keep your private business private. Free shipping and easy prescriptions. Boost your game and do it all from the privacy of your own home at www.jack.health. Okay, Sean, now that we've had our uh, hair, skin, sexual health, etc. looked after, uh, what should the Raptors be looking after for themselves in this offseason? It's interesting, man, because like... I've made this point on my own show, but I'm really, really excited for a low-key offseason where all we have to worry about is mid-level exception signings, right? You think last summer, it's uh, is Kyle Lowry, the best player in franchise history, going to be gone or is he coming back? Year before that, Marcus Gasol, Serge Ibaka, sort of like watching Giannis and is he going to sign the Supermax, the will he, won't he, all that stuff that people were worried about with the cap space in 2021 that was supposed to be the big thing. Uh, that was stressful. You go back the year before that, literally Kawhi Leonard leaves and like completely takes a window of contention off the table. Uh, year before that, they trade DeMar DeRozan. Uh, year before that, they have Kyle Lowry flirting with the Spurs and the Wolves before he comes back. Like, give me a low key chill off season where I can, you know, get excited about a $10 million signing that doesn't change the world for me. And, And like, I'm very, very content. You know, the offseason's fun to talk about for sure, but with this Raptors team in particular, it's kind of like the idea of, you know, marinating a hunk of meat that you're going to cook and then taking it out too soon and then, like, the flavors haven't properly absorbed. I really hope they don't do that and, like, start shipping off pieces in the interest of, you know, trades just for the sake of trades. And I don't think the Raptors front office is the type of group that will do that. They're very committed to the flavor profile of their basketball team. So I expect we'll see a pretty low key off season. I expect we're going to see like the most of the guys back, you know, I think a bit of a sort of change in the way that the team hierarchy is set up and the sort of dynamics and who plays with whom and who's coming off the bench. I think that's probably in store, but as far as the off season, what's exciting to me is to think about the core that we just enjoyed so much watching win 48 games is more or less going to be back and intact. And I think that's cool. And you know, there's something to be said for a big uproarious offseason where lots of things happen. But I think you have to be in the right space as a team to really want to be part of that. And like they were, for example, when they traded for Kawhi, that that, that team had kind of reached the point where something had to happen to shake things up. Whereas this one is so early in its curve that. I think you just leave well enough alone for the most part and then go try to sign DeLon Wright. And uh, <laughs> and I'm a happy camper. So like as much as there's nothing to get happy or excited about, like nothing fun technically to go down, I think that on its own is fun. There's something to be said for just sitting on the beach and not doing anything. I, your description of like the Raptors <laughs> is like leaning into their flavor profile. Really, really great. <laughs> painting, painting really great pictures with words. I'll say that much. But... Is there a part of you that wonders because you expect a quiet summer that it could be bombastic? Oh, sure. They could go trade for Rudy Gobert and I wouldn't be stunned. Like the, 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 there's there's a framework there. I don't know if I want it to happen. Uh, you know, the DeAndre Ayton stuff is out there too, I suppose. And I'm not even sure who I'd prefer between the two. But um, yeah, like 
100% something crazy could happen because, look, it's Messiah and Bobby. Those guys, if opportunity strikes, they're going to say, well, we have all of our picks except for this year's in, in the coffers. We've got a couple interesting young players, and we have all of these very good players on very reasonable and easy-to-move contracts. Like I've said all along, it seems like they're setting this team up for the next big strike at a star because of the contracts they have in tow. But I, I don't really think Gobert or Aiden is kind of like the guy you go and spend those chips on, if that makes sense. Like, I think you got to like, there's always going to be some other disgruntled star that comes along after another round of playoff flameouts next year. And for the most part, they'll have all those contracts on hand and, you know, a little bit more in terms of knowledge of who they want to keep around long term. So could happen. Wouldn't be totally stunned, but I'm banking on it being a little bit more chill just because that doesn't really feel to me like the, you know, Masai is so about winning and so about like, he's just so hell bent on winning the championship that I think he's already seen the blueprint, right? And patience is what got him to the point where he was in the spot where he could strike with a really good team already on hand to go get Kawhi. And I just feel like trading for Rudy Gobert right now feels like a Colangelo ass move and sort of like a half measure that's going to cap you out at some certain level. And it's harder to say, right? Because Scotty Barnes is Scotty Barnes and maybe his growth, whoever's around him, it's not going to matter. They're going to be a championship contender in five years anyway. But I do think it's it seems like a deal that, you know, a, a more desperate flailing GM would make as opposed to one who is pretty confident and comfortable in the sort of team building model he's set up and the guys he already has on hand and the time those guys have. Right. Like, sure, Pascal and Fred are on you know shorter contracts and you know, that'll be something they have to reckon with maybe this offseason. But like when it comes to extensions and stuff. But I, I think, you know, when you have Scotty Barnes, who's 20 years old and Precious Achua is in, he's 22 and he's in year three next year of his rookie deal. And you have all these guys who are, you know, really exciting and, and sort of still early in this germination process. I, I don't see that being a huge swing that Masai is going to go make because it's not at the sort of inflection point where it's like do something or, you know, watch the downturn kind of take over. That that brings up a really interesting ask of Masai because Masai has been unpredictable. Like mm-hmm. like he he was slow and building with the Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan version of the Raptors. He famously said he wanted to give those guys a platform and mm-hmm. said a similar you know expressed similar sentiments to um, Pascal and Fred. But these teams, when we look at the the makeup of like signing a guy like Damari Carroll who had no shot at an all-star team, but that was like 16 million a year when the cap went up and it was a really big mm-hmm. deal. And they had guys like Patrick Patterson and they were drafting Pirtle and Siakam and OG and just hitting on every type of pick. They were like, they had lottery picks in like Pirtle. And they had the really, you know, the sexy blogger pick in OG Ananobi and then emerging Pascal Siakam. And then they had their Mm all-stars. These are the types of hits that you don't expect them to make again. And the type of hits that, quite frankly, Malachi Flynn, Delano Banton, and David Johnson don't look like they're going to bring that back end. Norman Powell, Pascal Siakam, OG Ananobi, Fred Van Vliet. That title team before they trade for Kawhi, the dearth of talent is just like crazy. It's Mm -hmm. so heavy. And this team, it wasn't, it's just really interesting because you have Pascal and Fred and right there you have an all NBA and presumably, you know, with Fred healthy an all-star level guy. Mm -hmm. And the most interesting thing that could happen is OG and all-star leap. Maybe it's in the cards. Maybe it isn't, you know, it's possible. I'll say that much. I can mm-hmm. see it more than I could see it with Damari Carroll, for example. Sure. Or or Norman Powell or whatever. Or Gary Trent Jr., right? Um, and they have Precious and Scotty on rookie-scale contracts. And I think for a lot of people, the conventional wisdom is that if the Raptors are going to be a championship team in the next few years, it comes when Scotty hits hopefully all-star level on a rookie scale contract. And then Mm -hmm. just by proxy of that, combining all-star with all NBA with all-star, and then hopefully they're in the luxury tax, they're paying guys like OG, Precious is still on rookie scale. You're looking at maybe two all-defense guys plus whatever they're giving on offense 
kind of round that out. Mm-hmm. And on paper, just in your head, if you're playing the optimist game, that they get their A, and you know, once they are there, that seems to put you in the championship conversation. Just that glut of players. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, if we can be cute about storylines. Are you on the optimist storyline? Are you in the middler storyline or a pessimist storyline? Like, how do you view Pascal's first season in a little while, where or first off season in a little while, where he gets to work on his game? Yeah, Fred coming back healthy, Scotty's jump, OG maybe working on stuff, Precious. Like, how do you view the the future as far as the internal growth aspect? Yeah, I think for me, I'm kind of in between like the middle level of optimism and the like the peak level of optimism like it's a lot to put on a 20 year old dude to expect him to become like a franchise centering you know star player right like it's a lot there's still some some things for scotty barnes to figure out his offense is not 100 percent complete of course you know he's an incredible just guy who can go to the bucket and score from whatever spot he wants that's a huge thing to have on hand but like the three-point shot probably needs to come on along a little bit the pull-up game from the mid-range and and sort of the just the extra stuff that you need a star to do but i think there's a world in which he could be an all-star next season like i don't want to put a cap on that dude because he's incredible like does he have like a sort of siakam light type season in him where he goes for 21 8 and 5 i think that's totally on the table for next season like it's not that far uh you know in terms of you know a place you want to take your ambition you know i i think it's interesting i'm really curious to see if they go and extend fred and pascal because i think that will tell us a lot about what they think about what scotty can be within this core of the team And, and i hope they extend those guys back to the marination thing like i think just giving this a little bit more runway to to cook i i think is a good call but, you know, I have a vision of the team and I, it seems to be what their vision is, too, of sort of dueling heads of the snake, kind of binary stars, if you will, in Scotty and Pascal. Maybe at some point Scotty, you know, passes by Pascal and becomes the clear number one. But I, I think going into next season, I'd like to see those two guys as like the primary initiators, see what you can do with them, see how, you know, Scotty's playmaking in the half court has come along. And you know, have the road, you know, roving around those those binary stars of the planets who knock down forty percent of their threes in, in Fred and Gary Trent and OG and maybe Precious. You know, I, I think there's an obvious sort of pathway here to this team becoming very good. And I also think with the way the league is set up right now, with the cap crunch that's come in, where you're not seeing teams kind of just have a ton of cap space, we're not seeing like that much in the way of stars picking out destinations these days. Most teams are kind of like one-star operations, two-star operations at most. There's totally a pathway for the Raptors to throw themselves into that mix. Like, I don't think the Miami Heat are the greatest team I've ever seen. They're in the conference finals. They're very good. But I don't think it's crazy to suggest the Raptors could be on that level within a year or two. Like, it's as good as the Eastern Conference is. And look, we might be living in a world where the goddamn Celtics are just like our overlords for the next eight years, and that sucks. But as good as the East is... I think there's just a pathway to kind of being part of that top top upper crust set of teams. And they, they almost got there this season, right? Like I think full health against the Sixers, they, they can win that series. They, you know, Joel Embiid doesn't hit a three in game three to win it. Like there's a very real world in which the Raptors make it to the second round and take on a, a busted heat team with no Kyle Lowry and who knows what happens there. So yeah, I, I think it's pretty okay to be optimistic about the track this team can be on I, I wouldn't go into next season expecting a conference finals or anything like that but with the way scotty seems to just kind of absorb things and learn and get better with everything he does i i'm pretty bullish on where this team can be in two three years and we, you know we've seen it man john morant's in like what year three he's incredible same with luca same with all these guys who just seem to have come into the league recently and have gotten awesome real quick, like that's becoming a more recurring trend. And so I wonder if my own sort of hesitance to put too much onto Scotty Barnes is in some way sort of shaping the way I'm viewing him and maybe lowering what I should be on him, right? Maybe I should be here saying and bloviating and being like, Scotty Barnes is going to be an all NBA player next season. That seems like a lot. Again, he's 20 years old, but he's shown a pretty great capacity for being awesome. And you give him a little bit more rope, you give him more sort of uh, agency over how the offense runs. And I I do think there's sort of a a pathway there 
to build your team around. And then you wrote the definitive piece on this, right? Siakam and Barnes is the two-star duo. That's a thing now. I think the Raptors are going to commit themselves to that. And you could do a lot worse in terms of guys to hit your wagon to than two guys of that skill level. I mean, we're seeing it with Boston. Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, you surround them with just effective role players and guys who can hit threes. That's a pretty damn dangerous recipe. You you do the same thing with a healthy Clippers team. You know, you get a couple of dudes, 6'8 to 6'10, who can handle the ball and score and surround them with good players. That's kind of the recipe for very good basketball in today's NBA. And the Raptors seem to be kind of on that track. Maybe it's not next year where they really kind of hit high gear, but I, I don't think it's super far off. I think that's a, a great point you make about, you know, what the team wants to do. And I think and especially like how simple it is once, well, not simple, but you can have a clear vision of how you want to build a team mm-hmm. once you have those guys in tow. Like Miami has a very clear vision despite not having an MVP level player. And mm-hmm. the Raptors, like as great as I think Pascal is, the jump from where he is now to MVP is just like, it's as yeah. big a jump as the jump from rookie season to now. It's it's sure. incredible to get to that level of play. I don't think that's in the cards. And as yeah. you said, like putting weight on Scotty, not to say like, oh, maybe like a, a rookie contract all-star, but say this guy's an MVP in three. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, w- I wouldn't do that either. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's reminiscent of what was it? Uh, I think there's that video, right, where Scotty was in Florida and a fan asked him if he was going to stay <laughs> Stay in Toronto, <laughs> which is so funny. His first year of his rookie contract. What are your plans for 2028, Scotty? I demand to know. <laughs> yeah, but uh, it's it's really important this year that, you know, you can look objectively and I will only care about cap stuff mm-hmm. when it means a player is getting underpaid. If a player is getting yeah. overpaid, I'm like, Dude, don't talk to me about numbers, you nerd. Get lost. Mm-hmm. But when a guy's My getting cap out- philosophy is uh, they'll figure it out. Like the, yeah. their whole job, the whole job description of the front office is to figure that shit out. I do not worry myself with that stuff. Yeah. Except yeah. when a when I perceive a player as being underpaid, then mm-hmm. I'm a cap expert. Then I'm like, wow, you know, <laughs> this guy, he's so valuable. He's on this contract, like this the proletariat, you know, anything like that, right? And mm-hmm. OG and Fred, objectively, for what they, the type of impact they bring, are underpaid. And yeah. Pascal this year has ascended to a place where extension, stay on this contract, like 36, 35 or 36 million um, next season. I think everybody's okay with that because that's yeah. what you pay a player of his quality. Like nobody in Milwaukee cares that Drew Holiday is on a max contract. Because you know you can win a chip with Drew Holiday as one of your three best players. And most Mm -hmm. teams win a chip with three max players on it. That's typically the way it works out. And so Pascal is good enough for that. You know, how much better he gets to where maybe we say like, oh, yeah, he's underpaid. You know, I'd love to be on that train. (laughs) But the team has found things that work and they have this burgeoning star rookie. And I just... That's a super fun place to be. It's where Memphis, you know, was before they made their leap. It's where, you know, the Celtics were for a million years before it all finally came together. And it's like, Mm -hmm. that's a really fun place to be because optimism is optimism is the crack of of like, you know, and let's assume crack is good in this circumstance. Like, you know, (laughs) um, it's the crack of like fandom, right? It's like to dream of something bigger. Because mm-hmm. only one team can win the full vision of like, hey, we're the champions every year. 29 other fan bases have to have something. And yeah. the fact that the Raptors have this like pro- linear progression attached to Scotty Barnes's rising star, regardless of whatever else happens, is probably the coolest offseason storyline of all. And who knows what he comes back as, you know, after yeah. his first NBA offseason. He's grinding Sigma grind set like Jimmy Butler. Who knows? He's in the gym putting in work. Yeah. And like feelings of optimism are not all equal, right? Like there's a difference between like, oh man, Scotty Barnes could be the dude who leads this team to be like a perennial title contender versus being like, oh, Charlie Villanueva, second second in rookie of the year voting, baby. He's on the way. Like there's different types of guys to dream on. And I think Scotty Barnes is the right type of guy to dream on. And yeah, maybe Pascal never makes that leap into being, you know, a top 
eight player or whatever, however we want to define these things, not to get all Bill Simmonsy about it, but uh, like maybe he never does that, the really difficult leap you're talking about, but that's all right. Scotty Barnes is there. Maybe he can't, and he might not. That's also fine, too. They're going to be a good team, I think, regardless. And, you know, if it turns out that Scotty and Pascal reveal themselves to be the best second and third options on a great team, then obviously you have other ways you got to try to figure that out. But, you know, for now, there's no need to worry about that because we've yet to see what the limitations of Scotty Barnes are. We probably won't see what the cap on Scotty Barnes is for five, six years because these guys continue to add and grow and, you know, adapt and learn after seeing what defenses want to do to them taking a summer to incorporate all that information and what they're doing the next year. And I don't know about you, but Scotty to me seems like the type of dude who's going to uh, be a little bit hell bent on this type of thing and taking what went wrong and applying it. Like, would anybody be shocked? Would you be shocked if he came back like a 36% shooter next year, just because he was pissed. He missed all those threes in the last game. I wouldn't be stunned. Like he seems like he's wired that kind of way. And if you can't quantify it, it's hard to predict. There's no number you can say like, oh, well, that's predicting he's going to become this. But when you listen to the dude talk and you listen to people talk about him, he seems like the kind of guy that's worth kind of throwing your chips in. Not to throw any shade at Charlie Villanueva. I'm sorry. But uh, <laughs> where, where <laughs> one of the were great you? rookies in Raptors history. But yeah, it, it's a different ball game when Scotty Barnes is the guy you're dreaming of. Where were you when Charlie scored 46 in his God. rookie season? I'm pretty sure I was at like this, uh, what was that, 2005 is rookie season? 05, 06? Yeah. 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 I was at Raptor Ball. I don't know if you know what Raptor Ball is. It's like a camp uh, where I went like once a week. They taught you how to play basketball. Uh, I was like better than they were grooming there. you. Uh, it's it was, like the you know, Barcelona was... Kids Club. <laughs> yeah. You were, they exactly, wanted you on the yeah. team. Yeah, it was like the one time where I was better than everybody there at playing playing on a basketball court because I like I signed up for a division that was way too easy for me because I had played a little <laughs> bit of basketball. And so I was just like, everyone's like, wow, you're great. And I was like, this is the peak of my athletic career. This is awesome. <laughs> but I remember coming home from a day at Raptor Ball to the news that Charlie V had gone off for 48. Uh, that was uh, a very standout memory for me. The other one I remember coming home, it was the last game think of the season before they drafted Charlie V and I uh it was Omar Cook was putting up 19 points in the final game of the season and I was like that's the guy also Scotty Barnes Omar Cook not made the same as guys you dream on either <laughs> that's right optimism comes in different uh shapes and forms but uh so do podcasts this usually goes an hour but 55 between 50 and 55 minutes feels like a good spot to uh say goodbye to y'all but you know, Sean, thank you so much yeah. for coming on. The floor is yours to plug away, sell your wares, you know? Yeah. Locked on Raptors is daily podcast. We're staying daily through the end of free agency. So uh, you got lots of stuff to look forward to. I'm sure I'll, you know, harangue you into coming back on the podcast at some point. Uh, but yeah, every day, Monday to Friday, got 30 minute episodes talking about all sorts of random stuff. Next week is going to be a lot of fun. Actually, we have our annual over unders spectacular with Vivek Jacob and Sahal Abdi where uh, before the season we do a lot of big over-unders and we make our predictions at the end of the year we take it all up see who won and uh, once the all-nba awards are out we'll be able to finally uh, in full look at the over-unders and see who won uh, I got a 